All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 31st day of July 2018. Um, I do want to remind you that I'm the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our uh, our phone here in New York during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and for sending along your questions and comments, and today I will be sharing a couple of those comments with you uh, in this first segment. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are in resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold, Northern Empire, Novo Resources, and Great Bear Resources. And I would like to welcome Great Bear Resources as a new sponsor to our show this week. Great Bear has been having some uh, remarkable exploration success at its uh, project in the prolific gold-producing Red Lake District of Ontario. Exploration success combined with a very low market cap convinces me Uh, that the upside potential for folks who buy these shares at around their current levels could be quite substantial. Well, we'll look forward to speaking with the company's CEO and geologist, Chris Taylor, on the 14th of August on our show on uh, a couple of weeks from now. Excuse me. I titled today's show, Is There a Method Behind the Madness of Trump's Trade Policy? John Rubino and Michael Oliver are my guests this week. Michael will be with me after the first commercial break, and John will join me during the second half of today's show. One insight I recently gained, thanks to Hugo Salinas Price and my friend David Jensen, comes from a concept known as Triffin's Dilemma, which states that a nation with a reserve currency must, out of necessity, run chronic trade deficits and export its high-paying jobs. I expect to explore that issue and other related issues with John in the second half of today's show and uh, try to determine the impact of Trump's trade policies uh, on the markets and uh, what we might expect as a result of those policies. As always, uh, when we have Michael on the show, we look for ways to solidify views based on, that is, views of our markets based on fundamentals. Um, Well, those fundamentals that are from other sources and Michael's technical analysis, which is really very objective, uh, we look for ways to check the, those uh, theoretical views in light of Michael's uh, more objective, technically based views. And they have been uh, very, very sound as far as I can tell from the several years now I've been following his work. 
Last week, I received some responses from a couple of listeners who were annoyed that I dared to have Mike Faber as a guest on this show. Mark wrote in his newsletter a year or so ago something like, Thank God that North America was populated by white Europeans. Last week on my show, I suggested in introducing Mark that I personally might have said something like, Thank God North America was populated with people of a Judeo-Christian heritage. Because the formation of America had nothing to do with race. Rather, it had everything to do with the search for religious freedom and a non-intrusive government. As the Apostle Paul said in the letter to the Galatians, quote, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So that kind of sums up the Christian religion with regard to race. There have been, and no doubt still are people who have identified themselves as Christians, who were and still are undeniably racist, and in the past many had slaves, but Christian theology from its earliest days had been all-inclusive. It's been an all-inclusive religion because God created all of humanity equally before the law. In fact, it was that basic foundation of Christianity upon which Martin Luther King appealed to a nation to codify all laws, laws equally for all races in the United States. The the Voting Rights Act of the 1960s was a step in the right direction, but as President Johnson said at that time, when he signed the Voting Acts right, laws can only go so far. What needs to take place is a change in the hearts and minds of the population. And if you could name a religion, including the humanistic religion of the left wing, that is better able than Christianity at changing hearts and minds for the better, please let me know what that religion is. If you don't believe that, then I would challenge you to read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, I can't read Mark Faber's heart, and neither can any of you. I know him as a very brilliant thinker and a person who I do not believe would ever mean to harm anyone of any race, and I don't think there is any evidence that he ever has. So, in fact, the U.S. was formed on the basis of a cultural of a culture that came out of Europe. It did not spring out of any other continent. It was born from a Judeo-Christian culture, which is why the Declaration of Independence was written as it was. Let me just quote a few lines of that. Quote, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impelled them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Uh, That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And of course, the the declaration continues on with a great more many details and also then details the egregiences against King George uh, from which the early settlers of America 
they left King George because of the persecution of uh, of religion, and that's why the earliest settlers in the United States uh, in, in the colonies arrived here. So this was a most basic idea upon which the United States was formed. Now, I would like to address a couple of comments from listeners to this show uh, who were quite disturbed by me having Mark on with me last week. First, uh, there was a call from a man in New Jersey who said he has been listening to this show for quite a while, and he was really disappointed that I would have Mark on my show, and how could I uh, diminish the the show by having him on. He talked about the discuss, quote dis- disgusting horrible things he has said. Don't ever have him on again. Good riddance to bad garbage. End of quote. Then I received an email from an Australian who lives in Singapore who wrote the following: What is it with you alt right Austrians that you don't hear or understand dog whistles? If what Mark Faber said is not racist, then without a doubt. It is extremely bigoted, end of quote. Well, I'm not sure that Mark is any more bigoted than the people who sent me uh, some of these responses, but I have to admit that there is much in his complaint that I agree with, the complaint of this Austrian citizen, uh, Australian citizen, I should say, and I have no doubt that Mark, who lives in Thailand, would also agree with him on many of his points. The Australian went on to say, and I quote, U.S. hegemony and the fact that over the last 100 years, millions of, Ameri- millions of people have died as a result of nefarious U.S. global hegemony. He stated, as an Australian living in Indonesia, I can see and feel the aftermath of a classic CIA backup coup d'etat where the United States kicked out a democratically elected leader and installed a puppet friendly to the American interests. He goes on to say, in 30 years, the United States raped and pillaged Indonesian natural resources, while General Suharto was the gatekeeper for American corporations to carry out their nefarious behavior. And ditto for the rest of the world. Just how many trillions of dollars added to the U.S. economy through U.S. global hegemony? I couldn't imagine Africans behaving like this across the world if hypothetically Africans did settle and develop the continental United States. There are many other examples I could give. Your defense of Mark Faber, re, re, uh, your defense of Mark Faber's results are so dumb. It makes me question other aspects of your thinking. This has nothing to do with partisan issues and your accusations of the so-called liberal left-leaning media. No, it's just a matter of common sense and logic. And thinking through what Faber actually said and the ramifications of his preso- of his proposal. End of quote. Well, I would. Uh, there is so much to say in response to this person's remarks, but given time constraints, uh, uh, let me just make a few points. I do very much agree with the listeners' outrage against American hegemony, which includes killing of millions of innocent people and ongoing overthrow of governments around the world. One of the latest examples being the Ukraine, when Victoria Nuland efforts, when her efforts, sponsored by leftist George Soros, negated the will of the Ukrainians in their free democratic election. I have had people on this show like John Perkins in the past who has highlighted this point, and I should like to remind you that our first president, George Washington, warned us not to get entangled in the affairs of Europe uh, as well as other political affairs of other countries. We were never meant to be a democracy by our founders, In fact, the Constitution never mentions the word democracy. We were to be a republic with a very limited government. Now, that changed big time around 1913 with the election of President Wilson, 
who was very much an elitist with ties to the rich and powerful J.P. Morgans and the Rothschilds overseas in Europe. As a creature from Jekyll Island documents, these rich and powerful international forces, they forced the Federal Reserve and income taxes on the American people in 1913, and it was President Wilson that started to use the word democracy. Remember, the excuse that he gave for the U.S. getting involved in World War I was to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, end of quote. From that time onward, the U.S. lost its republic, and we began to become an empire, which, of course, accelerated after World War II when our ruling elite let the world know that we were not fooling around, that at least the United States elite was not fooling around when President Truman dropped the H-bomb on the Japanese people. And John Perkins, Daniel L. McAdams, and others in this show have documented the evils of our empire uh, throughout history. But that was done by the white people who. But that was not done by the white people who originally settled in America. As for suggesting that other races might not be as violent as the United States, I would suggest to the listener uh, that you just check out some of the horrific things that African dictators have done to their own people, or what has transpired in Asia over the centuries. The idea that one race is better or worse than another is simply not verifiable. That America, which has been dominantly of Caucasian race, dropped the H-bomb cannot be denied. White Americans who dropped the H-bomb had, techni- had technology to use for uh, such destruction. But I don't think that you can say that makes white people uh, more evil than other people, than other races. I don't think that is a fair statement unless other races had the same technology at their disposal and then refused to use it. American hegemony made possible by dollar hegemony was accelerated by Richard Nixon when he removed gold from the dollar in 1971. That enabled the United States to establish the world's reserve currency, which has been used to further fund the American empire and expanded very dramatically since 1971, I must say. But in fact, holding the reserve currency has caused the United States to become a parasitic nation which has hurt the middle-class Americans by resulting in the massive loss of higher-paying jobs. So I do, as I mentioned earlier, I do hope to discuss this issue and several more with John Rubino uh, in the second half of today's show. The bottom line from my perspective is this. Unless America returns their hearts to our creator, we can look to Venezuela and other left-wing statist-orientated countries to see where we are heading. Getting rid of God, we have only to rely on humans, and the outcome for that has been quite dismal over history. I would like to just pass along the words of G.K. Chesterton, who observed many years ago the following, and I quote, It is only in believing in God that we can criticize the government. Once God is abolished, the government becomes the God. The fact is written all across human history. The truth is that irreligion is the opium of the people. Wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. But above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. End of quote. Perhaps that has something to do with some of the outrageous dictatorships that we've seen uh, in all over the world, actually, in the, last, uh, in the last century or so. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Michael Oliver will be with me to discuss his view of the dollar, gold, and other markets Uh, Things that are a little easier, perhaps, to digest than the topic I just mentioned or I just spoke about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Michael Oliver. And you can go to check out Michael's work and to sign up for his newsletter at olivermsa.com. Olivermsa.com. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you with me. And um, when we miss you, we go into some sort of withdrawal symptoms, I think, we hear from some of our listeners. But... uh, it's good to know you had a vacation, and I'm glad to hear uh, that you're now all ready to fight the battles ahead. Uh, right. Michael, uh, you, you know, it's, it's quite clear that gold bugs and gold share investors are getting quite nervous. Uh, for example, this past week, I received the following email that I'd like to just pass on to you from a mm-hmm. person named Mark. Uh, the fellow's name is Marco. He says, Mr. Taylor, I'm very concerned about gold and the miners. Even Gary Savage, who was one of the few to call the bottom in January 2016, I guess he doesn't realize you did the same thing. Uh, he, he says that even Gary Savage is concerned about this market. He is not anyone anymore sure that we are in a gold bull market. Could you ask Michael Oliver if he really, and he capitalizes really and underscores it, if he really thinks that we are in a bull market in gold and the commodities in general? And uh, he says, I have lost almost any hope after this too long sideways correction. This is not a bull market behavior. Best regards, Marco. So how would you respond to Marco? Well, I uh, got up at 5 o'clock in the morning this morning because in my dreams I was thinking about a price chart of gold, not, uh-huh. not momentum. Momentum is uh-huh. pretty clear to me. It's a, one. It's in a bull trend. Yes, it is. Has been stuck. It's all gold miners and silver in a lateral movement for the last year and a half. The case of gold, it's been stronger because we've returned to the highs in January, back up into the above thirteen fifty, for example. Whereas silver and gold miners did not do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they more or less laid in the, in the a sideways zone about, about halfway off the highs of two thousand sixteen between the highs of 2016 and the lows of 2015 and just went to sleep. Mm-hmm. So there was no upside, no reward. Therefore, anybody who's long feels like, gee, what a waste, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're not collapsing. They just 
would go up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, gold has actually had a good pullback, but I realized I, I created a $50 by three-block reversal point and figure chart. Mm-hmm. People familiar with that uh, will know what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what it says is you, you plot the upticks and the downticks. And I went all the way back to zero. It was back when the London Exchange was trading gold at 50 bucks. We took uh, over in 1975. Gold reached 200. And we had a pullback. And then we went up, you know, et cetera. So I created the point and figure since 1970 to the present, 50 by mm-hmm. three. And when you stand back and look at it, it says, you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing down ticks to 1,200 because mm-hmm. if we down tick and touch 1,200, which is meaningless on price charts, especially mm-hmm. on this chart, uh, I would set up a double top at 1,350, three down ticks, 1,300, 1,250, 1,200, right? Okay, mm-hmm. on that chart. It, but it doesn't acknowledge the sell-off until and unless I get three down ticks. Mm-hmm. We've spent seven months of downside pressure in gold since the January high, and haven't been able to get three down ticks on this simple chart, whereas right. over the last several years, since the low at 10.50 back in 2015, we've had many such down tick columns, in fact, more than three ticks. Mm-hmm. Yet we've just spent seven full months trying to get three down ticks and can't get them so far. Right, right now, goal is 12.24. It's uh, 14 bucks off the low of the month, uh, and it's uh, sideways for the last three weeks. Um, my shorter-term stuff, weekly momentum, monthly momentum, as opposed to annual, which is outright positive, they've been negative since earlier in the year, but they are very close when we get into the next month, which starts tomorrow, uh-huh. uh, to getting upturns that say, okay, that's enough of that. I'm, I'm coming up out of the hole. It wouldn't take a $10 rally and a weekly close to, to begin that process. Huh. So... I see the panic. I can, it, it's palpable. It's more panic now, I think, than there was in that sell-off in December 2016, mm-hmm. in which case gold dropped all the way from 1360 down to a low of uh, 1120. Mm-hmm. There's more panic now in a, in, a, in a move that's half as powerful as that one was. Yeah. And yet the panic is palpable. The commitment of traders uh, in the futures is more short than it's ever been. I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting world. So, uh, yes, I'm still positive because annual momentum trend has not been negated. Yes, it has gone to sleep, but that doesn't negate the prior positive signal. And I still think it's uh, highly likely gold will turn up out of here and uh, reassert itself. I think it's waiting on one thing. My bias is this, and it's not the dollar. It's waiting on the S&P to get fractured one more time to uh, create a greater conviction level on the part of uh, smart money to move out of that asset category into commodities and gold. And mm-hmm. I think the next breakage in the S&P will be a, uh, an igniter, uh, especially for the gold market. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, what are we? Uh, we're, aren't we getting close now, Michael, to one of the longest yes, we are. Yes. bull markets? So, I mean, maybe the one that ended in two thousand was slightly longer. Yeah, yeah, but there, but there were uh, what we've gone through over the last year and a half is, is, is a lot of sideways action. But if you'll go back and look at the sideways action that occurred. After gold went to $850 an ounce in 1980 and then dropped down into a low at about 300 in 1982, gold went sideways for a decade. Right. 
in a range sure of a few hundred dollars, okay? Right. Now, I don't think that's going to happen this time. I think there's too many other macro trend events that are underway. But you talk about sideways for a year and a half, two years, it doesn't compare 1982 through about 1990-something. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that was not so, a bear market. It was just a sideways market with ups and downs. Okay, Michael, so what is, what's the dollar looking like to you? Because I picked up an article mm-hmm. from Barron's this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, the author, Simon Constable, says gold's tailspin is far from over. And he said, don't expect gold prices to recover anytime soon because the strength of the U.S. dollar will keep a lid on any rally at the mm-hmm. very least and could push prices for the metal down further. Of course, you know, okay. this is an establishment newspaper. Oh, yeah. I don't expect uh, anything else. But what about the dollar? Our assessment of the dollar, we went bearish as it broke $99 index I'm speaking of. It collapsed to about 88 and a half. Then it has since rallied back over 95. It did that in May. It did it in June. And it did it in July. Every time it gets over 95, somebody whacks it. And it comes back down to around 94. It's where we are now. So the question is, was it a real turn in the dollar or a counter-trend rally? We label it as a counter-trend rally against the annual momentum downtrend that commenced in May of last year. And we think it's merely a rally in a bearish long-term downtrend. And so far, it's behaving like it because it has spun its wheels for three solid months now uh, between 94 and 95, 94 and 95. It is not going anywhere for the last 90 days. So people are talking about the dollar bull. Well, I haven't seen it in 90 days. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, a, it, yeah. people short, short-term orientation, you know, people... Well, yeah, you look they, at they dailies don't. or something, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's just not it's not got any potency to it, and I don't think it's going to. Uh, we, but you know, it's hard to be bearish on the dollar and, and therefore bullish on the euro uh, mm-hmm. when you think about fundamentals. I mean, you know, how mm-hmm. can you be bullish on the euro? Because right, fifty-seven percent of the dollar index, and I don't know. I can't explain that uh, except to say you're measuring uh, one fiat currency versus another. I could use another term in describing what those money units are, uh, mm-hmm. but it would be rude. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's hard to compare one nothing to another nothing. Right. It, right. Fundamentally yeah. argue a case for either. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, technically, we argue the case that the dollar is a major bear, and this is a counter-trend rally. All right. So what's the uh, T-bond? I think you're, you're still very firmly bearish yeah. and think rental. we started a yeah. long-term, perhaps mega-year bear market, right? Yep, we started it in October 2016 as T-bond futures sank down through 166. Uh, they're right now laboring in the low 140s. They've had a couple good counter-trend rallies, and I still think we're in one, which is an extremely anemic one. It's a time waster on the upside, or sideways is a better description. I suspect the T-bonds have a little bit more rally in them, meaning a little drop in yields, uh, and team displays to T-notes as well, the 10-year instrument. Uh, if the doll, if the S and P cracks, another February mm-hmm. type event, which I see sure. highly likely, mm-hmm. and that would give the bonds that temporary flight to quality boost, which might get T bond futures up to one forty seven, one forty eight, or something like that. Ultimately, I think the T bond futures are going into the one twenties. That converts to a yield on the thirty year of about four and a quarter percent. Wow, which is a quite a quite a boost. Now, you know, I, that's not the, necessarily the end of it, but for the time being, that's the first major leg. I think um, that would be quite a uh, quite a oh, quite yes. a tectonic shift in the markets, no doubt about that. Well, one more thing, Michael, with just a couple of minutes left, uh, 
Yeah, you know, most of the time we have you on talking about gold and the markets and bonds and a couple of those major markets. But what people need to realize is that you cover a whole host of markets, and one of them that I've that I uh, that I'm very interested in is uranium. Of course, nobody mm-hmm. wants uranium these days. It's really almost the most out of out of fashion market I can think of. Uh, but it looked to me like there may be some hope for for uranium in the not too distant mm-hmm. future. Your charts. I, I agree. We've been watching uranium for about a year, year and a half. Uh, there are futures, but the futures are highly illiquid, being in the daily volume is zip, uh, very little. But there's enough yeah. price data there from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for us to, to plot and uh, technically analyze the uranium contracts. Uh, and to us, it looks like a massive one, a collapse of price that's off the page. It's like a market goes, commodities don't go to zero. Uh, that's the first mm-hmm. rule yeah. of investing. Uh, it looks like uranium went to what might be called theoretical zero. Uh, and it's since turned up enough to where we have two layers on our annual momentum studies of uranium, one of which was already broken out a few months ago. And since then, the uranium's gone up about 10%, which is to say a couple bucks. <laughs> it's that low. Uh, and we're very close to breaking out over a multi-year momentum base on annual momentum. And the vehicles for participation, unfortunately, the futures, again, are illiquid. There is an ETF called URA, which is comprised of uranium-producing companies, the largest mm-hmm. of which is Cameco, CCGA, sure. which is about 25% of that ETF, I think. Or there's CCJ itself, uh, Cameco, which is the largest uh, uranium producer in the world. Uh, uranium prices are below cost of production, but I understand that this year demand is now outstripped supply for the first time in oh. many years. Oh, the, okay. Uh, the Japanese uh, nuclear meltdown thing. Uh, yeah. This is the first year we've actually had demand outpace supply. But uh, technically speaking, we think it's a, a zeroed out market that has nothing to do but go up. Hmm. And Very interesting. When you, when you get the theoretical zero, it doesn't take a lot to have a 50% a doubling in price. <laughs> if, you know. yeah. Good point. I don't know what that does for the shares if they're still uh, well, producing. Well, they should help them yeah. a lot because they're, yeah. they're under cost of production, too, so they, yeah. they should benefit greatly. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, there's a, a lot of the world's energy still comes from uh, from nuclear power, so the, the idea that uh, uranium could go to zero, of course, is a, is a non-starter. Yeah. Michael, I want to thank you very much for being with us again, and uh, I hope we can have you back next week. or Whenever Good we can, job. we're going to grab you. Our people really miss you, you when you're not with us. Thank you so much. Well, Bye-bye. folks, don't go away. Uh, John Rubino will be with me. We're going to talk about the logic behind the logic or illogic behind Trump's tariffs. We'll let John give his opinions on that and various other items related to that. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have John Rabino with me once again. Uh, dollarcollapse.com. Dollarcollapse.com is where you should go to pick up John's articles that he writes frequently uh, and a lot of other good information there. So uh, I should say I think probably most of you know John, uh, but if there's some of you that are tuning in for the first time uh, today, he is the author of uh, several books, uh, some uh, perhaps the best-known one is Money Bubble, uh, which he co-authored with James Turk. Uh, he is also very well known for the articles that he writes at dollarcollapse.com and for some of the prestigious magazines in the financial world that he authors, or at least one that I, I know he is writing articles for from time to time. So uh, he is uh, formerly on Wall Street uh, uh, in the bond market, and so he's a very experienced financial guy. Uh, he has also been a host on this show, and all the feedback I get from those of you who listen to John when he took my place at this mic, uh, very, very positive. And so in addition to John's expertise, his knowledge, his uh, knowledge of the financial markets, he's also one of the nicest people that I know personally, so I'm really always pleased to have him with me uh, at this show. Thanks, John, for joining me again. Sure, Jay. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to have you, John. And um uh, you know, you wrote an article yesterday that I, I really want to talk about at some point today. Um, you posted it at dollar2collapse.com, and the title is, is, interest, uh, is the interest rate death spiral finally starting? And I, and I do want to, because I think that's a very, very timely and very important issue. We just talked to Michael Oliver, who's convinced that the bull market and the T-bond is over, and we're on to a multi-year bear market there. So obviously, that's going to have some major impacts on the markets. Uh, but before we get to that, I would like to focus a little bit on the topic of Triffin's Dilemma, which I know you're, you're familiar with, and uh, also uh, an article that you, uh, that you called attention to. I think you, you um, wrote a, an, an introduction to Michael Pinto um, talked about how the trade war will hurt the United States and the world. So uh, this whole Triffin's Dilemma idea has, suggests or states that uh, a country with a reserve currency has to run trade deficits and export jobs. Uh, and it seems to me that maybe one of the things that Trump is doing is trying, of course, to to reward the electorate, the people that voted him, the people that have probably lost a lot of jobs as a result of the U.S. having the world's reserve currency. Uh, but where do you come down on this whole trade issue, John? Now, you know, we've all been taught that free trade is the best thing possible. If it is indeed free trade, I think you can make the argument it's never been completely free. But let's hear your thoughts on on Trump's trade policies and and what your thoughts are on that topic. Well, trade policy is is why we have President Trump right now. You know, we we have, as you said, been in favor of free trade for a long time, but we we also recognized that 
um, China especially, because we wanted it to transition from being a, a communist enemy to a capitalist friendly competitor, needed special treatment for a while on trade. And Europe, while it transitioned away from a bunch of different nation states towards one big super state, which we also wanted to happen, they, that they needed a little special treatment. So we kind of took one for the team in terms of world trade over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, when we accepted kind of unfavorable terms of trade in order to help the world develop. Um, for instance, China um, was able to build basically the world's manufacturing base over there mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and run a huge trade surplus with us, which we accepted because we wanted them to develop. Um, it's kind of the same thing with Europe. We wanted them to be able to uh, coalesce into um, a, a stable system that wasn't going to have a world war every 30 or 40 years. Uh, but that came at a cost, which is we hollowed out our manufacturing base in the mm -hmm. U.S. because manufacturing flowed to all these other countries. Uh, and that left behind the people who used to have good unionized factory jobs. Um, and they're the ones who voted for Donald Trump or, you know, who voted populist in general for Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders and for Donald Trump. Um, and, and so they're Trump's constituency. So it's mm -hmm. no surprise that he's trying to re redress the, um, the trade imbalances that have built up over the years. And it's also no surprise that he's doing it in a way that's consistent with his business practices in the past. Uh, you know, the whole art of the deal thing for Trump, which has kind of sort of served him well, um, over his career in business is to uh, to attack and then work out a deal. In other words, uh, as a, a businessman, he would file a lawsuit and then cause so much trouble for the people he was suing that they would say, all right, what do we need to get this over with? <laughs> and, and then they would cut a deal. Um, so it was nothing personal from his point of view. He was just trying to get the best deal and, and contention was the way he would do it. Well, now he's got a lot more tools than just lawsuits and he's using them, um, tariffs, the threat of nuclear war, all kinds of other things um, to bring people to the negotiating table in the hopes of getting a better deal. And it's it's working. Europe has um, has already publicly stated that they were going to, you know, rewrite the trade rules vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and work with Trump to make a, a, a different set of rules that are more favorable to us. Um, China and the U.S. just announced that they were going to reopen trade talks. So, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's kind of getting what he wants. It's, uh, it's arguable um, whether the cost and the risk are unacceptable because um, he, he's not dealing with, um, you know, the homeowners association at a condo <laughs> complex. Now he's right. dealing with nuclear powers who are also our creditors. They, they, yeah. um, we Good owe point. them a lot of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and so it, it's not clear that, that it doesn't spin out of control at some point because we've got a lot of power on all sides mm -hmm. and a lot of people making decisions under pressure without complete information, you know, the way those things usually go. So mm -hmm. this isn't risk-free, <laughs> but so far it, it seems to be working out without the worst case scenario becoming um, the, the most likely outcome. Yeah. And we've got to keep our fingers crossed that it continues this way and that we get some deals and that we move on from trade as this big central issue, you know, that we settle things in a way that's somewhat more favorable for us, brings some factory work back to the U.S., satisfies the constituency that voted for Trump, 
And, you know, it's completely possible, Jay, that the timing of this works out really well electorally, too, because we've got um, we've got midterm elections coming up pretty soon, which weren't looking good for the Republicans when the uh, the, the trade thing was a source of turmoil in the constituent parts of the country for, mm-hmm. for Trump. But now if he gets deals before the elections happen, mm-hmm. uh, that gives him a lot of momentum going into those elections with a fairly strong economy and he's succeeding in, in keeping his promises. And, and it's possible that the Republicans are able to hold on to both um, houses of Congress for another two years, which would be a really impressive feat. That doesn't normally happen in American electoral politics anymore. Right. Right, that's that's exactly true. Well, John, you said that we took we took one for the team, and I would suggest that maybe when you say we, uh, not everyone in America took one for the team. For example, it seems to me that one of the things with the reserve currency, one of the reasons we went off the gold standard and took on the world's reserve currency, was so that our military-industrial complex could expand, so we could expand our empire, our markets, and so on and so forth. Uh, certainly, people in government, government has grown dramatically. With the ability to create money out of nothing, the government, uh, so people that have government jobs, uh, jobs related to people that sell defense items or other things to and through the government that has an, uh, a checkbook without limits, seemingly without limits, uh, that those people have done quite well. And, of course, the banking institutions have done quite well as well, the financial sector, because we've been able to multiply the money supply and banks having more money could do more business and so forth. So I'm wondering if, if that might not have something to do with the divisiveness that we're feeling in America right now on a financial side anyway, that this whole issue of, um, of government getting bigger and people that are closer to the feeding trough, so to speak, doing extremely well at the expense of the people that actually produced uh, wealth-creating jobs, I would argue, mining, manufacturing, and so forth. You know, when a manufacturing plant is set up, it's not just those jobs, but because that brings in new wealth into an economy, then there are service jobs that spring up around there. But if your country is based on primarily on service jobs without those basic wealth-creating jobs, it seems to me it's not a very good situation. So do you, would you, would you agree that perhaps... Uh, when you say we took one for the team, we meaning, the whole, yes, but not everybody equally, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, a globalized economy is great for symbol manipulators, corporate lawyers, um, international reporters, people who um, program computers and and do things that require a high level of education mm-hmm. and uh, a high level of intellectual mobility. You, you do great in a globalized economy because your market gets bigger when mm-hmm. um, new countries begin trading with your country. Uh, but if you're someone who works with physical things, you're at the mercy of wage rates in countries that are less well-developed and are therefore lower, so you tend to lose out. So yeah, we, we over the past 30 years, have seen this huge bifurcation in society in which some groups are doing really, really well. You know, if you're a, um, a Goldman Sachs investment banker, this is mm-hmm. the best world ever, and the country's really well managed, and, and mm-hmm. things are going great, and we need to stay the course. And if you're a former factory worker who's now a greeter at Walmart, exact opposite. Right. Um, and that's why this election... Um, this past election for president was so interesting in the U.S. because we ran a globalist, Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. who was basically an employee of Wall Street in a lot of ways, who was saying that, you know what, we're making progress. We need to continue with current policies because we're doing great. 
we ran her against a guy who was saying, you know what, the rich people are screwing you over. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to stop this immigration madness. I'm going to renegotiate free trade agreements. And, and he spoke to the constituency that was losing or perceived that it was losing in globalization. And uh, that constituency turned out to be big enough to elect a president. So that's how far along we are. But, uh, that the people who perceive themselves to be losing can, can win national elections. So we're we're at basically 50-50 winners and losers now yeah. in, in people's minds. And that's an impossible place to be. If half the people in your country think that they're losing out, yeah. then then you've got political instability as far yeah. as the eye can see until things get fixed. Yeah, well, let's hope they do. I, I think there's uh, there's no doubt that this is one of the most tumultuous times I can recall in my lifetime. And I was a young person during the Vietnam era, and that was pretty rocky too in many ways. But... Uh, let's hope that things get settled. But in that regard, uh, you mentioned a little while ago about all this debt that the U.S. has, uh, which leads me then to the, another topic I want to make sure we, we cover today, and that is interest rate death spiral. You ask, is the interest rate death spiral uh, finally starting? John, could you, your article, I should remind our listeners, is posted at dollarcollapse.com. They can go and read, the, read that article and many more that John has there. But could you just comment on that, perhaps, uh, for us now, John? What What are your thoughts? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, well, here's what we've done over the past decade or so. We've pushed interest rates down to um, historically extremely low levels in order to deal with all the bad debt that was blowing up um, because of past mistakes. Uh, and that allowed us to borrow huge amounts of new money. Well, now we're trying to normalize. In other words, let interest rates go back up to historically normal levels and get the Federal Reserve out of the asset buying with new currency game. Um, but there's a problem with that because of all the debt we've built up. A lot of it is either very short term, which means it has to be rolled over, or it's variable rate, which means it fluctuates according to overall interest rates. Um and if we let interest rates go up, that means everybody who has to roll over debt or who has variable rate debt sees their interest costs go up. Um, so the U.S. government, for instance, has very low interest costs today. But mm-hmm. let interest rates go up to the level that was normal back in the 1990s, not even high, just normal mm-hmm. previ- prior to the uh, the great monetary experiment that began in 2000. Um, and we would see our interest costs at just the central bank or central government level go up over a trillion dollars. That means that we're already running pretty close to a trillion dollar a year deficit right now. Add another trillion dollars that we would have to borrow uh, in interest costs and you'd see this death spiral begin in which our debts continue to increase uh, and interest rates go up, which means the cost of that debt goes up even faster than the debt is going up, um, which eventually blows up the system. And it won't take long for that to happen, and it won't take a big rise in interest rates. We don't have to go to unusual interest rates, just normal interest rates for that to happen. Uh, And that's true everywhere in the world, and it's true beyond central governments. It's true for corporations. It's true for individuals. um, And when this thing really gets going, uh, we'll see this extraordinary disruption in the financial system where everybody's interest costs are rising, and that bankrupts growing numbers of economic entities out there and starts the system um, spinning downward into a probably um, unstoppable descent until we either have a hyperinflation or a global 1930s style depression. And interest rates could be the key to that process. 
Well, Michael Oliver, who we had on before you, uh, his technical work is suggesting that the bull market for the T-bonds that started back in the early 80s is over. Uh, and he believes the first stop would be it would take us to a T-bond yield of something like four and a half, I think you said, or four and a quarter. Uh, what Would that be enough to cause us some real problems? Oh, definitely. A, a 4% average borrowing cost for the U.S. government would give us an $840 billion a year interest bill, just interest, mm. in addition to everything else. Oh, my and, goodness. And that would be probably bad enough to scare everybody. Mm. <laughs> and once you scare everybody, it's game over in a fiat currency system. So, yeah, that, that would do it. But the perception that it was going to continue is what would be really dangerous. Because if rates go to 4%, people start thinking, well, interest rates are rising. So, 5, 6, 7, you know, we extrapolate our recent um, experience into the indefinite future. That's how the human mind works. And at that point, we see numbers that are impossible to manage. And then everybody basically just leaves financial assets because nobody wants to be involved with bonds if you think interest rates are going to continue to rise because that means the value of your bond is going to crash. And if you think interest rates are going to go up, then you don't want to own stocks so much either because their dividend yields look less and less attractive relative to higher and higher bond yields. So Mm -hmm. you want to keep your powder dry until you see a top in bonds and then jump in. Um, You know, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, um, treasury bond yields went to 16%. Mm -hmm. I know. And and that can never happen again. But if we even start trending in that direction, it'll blow up the financial system. So we're at a very dangerous place. What will probably happen is that the Fed will recognize this and then go back to quantitative easing. Instead of quantitative tightening, which we've got now, where they're trying to normalize, they'll cut rates to negative levels that we've never seen in the U.S. And they'll start buying back financial assets hand over fist with newly created currency. And and that'll set the stage for the next hyperinflationary cycle and probably the final one in this fiat currency system. So, Jay, that's when you want to own gold and silver, of course. <laughs> you know, well, all roads lead back to precious metals. <laughs> yeah, I think yourself, you definitely want to have tan- tangible assets and, of course, the most portable of them, gold and silver, gold even more than silver, of course. Uh, yeah, I should remind uh, and tell our listeners that there are, uh, you know, just some of the items that we'd like to talk about, but we don't have enough time today. Another article that you wrote, uh, Public Sector Pensions, the parasite devours the host. Another one is U.S. housing bubble enters state two. Suddenly motivated sellers are out there. Uh, another one, which maybe you could comment just on briefly, will Disney's epic buyout of Fox mark the end of the everything bubble? Give us your thoughts on that, John. Yeah, well, past financial bubbles um, have seen bigger and bigger takeovers. As people get cocky and they have access to insane amounts of cash, they, they tend to start building empires. And you see these big takeovers like um, America Online took over Time Warner uh, back in the late 1990s. And that kind of rang the bell for the, uh, the end of that cycle when something that outrageous happened. Um, and soon after that, tech stocks collapsed. Um, and it's possible that we're seeing something like that now because we're, we've seen some really big corporate mergers and acquisitions take place just lately because money has been so available, so easy for big companies. And Disney um, Fox is a huge takeover. 
uh, one which consolidates the media world even further in the hands of fewer and fewer corporations. Um, and so it's possible that looking back on it, we'll say, okay, that was the end right there. That's when we should have known <laughs> that the system mm-hmm. had, uh, had run its course in this cycle. Um, so pay attention to that, how it goes. I think it's going to happen. It looks like the uh, the other bidders have dropped out. It looks like Fox has agreed to be bought up by Disney. And um, and we'll see where that goes. You know, it's building a, a total media powerhouse, but Disney has to borrow a ton of money to do it. All right. Very interesting. Well, John, with just a couple of minutes left here yet, uh, another article you noted, Marin Katusa, uh, it was turning very bullish on, uh, on junior gold mining stocks. Could you... Uh, just comment on that briefly and then possibly also what you see in terms of the gold and silver futures action turning point, which you also wrote about. And again, all this, all these articles can be read at dollarcollapse.com. Well, Marin Katusa is a, a very well-known, very highly respected um, commodities analyst. And his take is that he's agnostic on the price of gold. It might mm-hmm. go up or it might not go up soon, you know, in the next year. But that... Um, while that's happening, the big mining companies are using up their gold reserves faster than they're uh-huh. replenishing in them. And, that's, and sure. that's going to lead them to buy out the junior miners who have already found decent-sized reserves because the big guys can't find enough on their own, which is um, great for the prices of the explorers and the other junior miners, which means everybody should uh, subscribe to your newsletter, Jeff, because it's the <laughs> perfect time for that. Uh, yeah, um, well, I think it could be. Yeah, we're certainly at the bottom. I, I think we have to be close to it if we're not there. Yeah. Yeah. And a- as for the uh, the state of the gold market right now, uh, the, the stars are lining up pretty positively, I think. We've got the uh, Commitment of Traders report, which is the positioning of um, futures contract players in gold, um, looking incredibly um, bearish from the point of view of what those guys are doing. Speculators are as bearish as they've ever been, and that's traditionally a bullish signal. In other words, when the guys who trade mostly on emotion and momentum are terrified, that's usually the end of the, the bear market in something. And gold has been going down for a while. The speculators are terrified, and that implies that uh, that we've got an up market coming for gold that'll last a few months. That'll take us into the seasonally really strong period for gold and silver when India and China do most of their buying, which usually also gives gold and silver a nice pop. So we could have everything lined up all at once for a very nice run for gold and silver uh, starting in September or so and then running through January or February of 2019, which is also great for the junior miners because they're very volatile. They go up and down more than gold and silver. So let precious metals go up. The little miners will rock it. I like what I hear, uh, from <laughs> what, what it, as they say, from your mouth to God's ears, I think someone says. But anyway, I, I hope you're right because uh, certainly for, for selfish reasons. Uh, John, I want to thank you so much for being with us again today. Always, always a pleasure having you with us. Always, your your insights are always uh, very much appreciated by me and my listeners. So uh, we'll look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Well, folks, that is all the time we have today. Next week, Alistair McLeod will be with me to talk about how are you going to value gold in a world that's awash in fiat currency. Should be an interesting topic along the lines of what John was just talking about, perhaps. And Ivan Bebek will be back with will be with me as well. He gave us an update on RN Resources, one of those stocks that's been languishing at the bottom for some time. Uh, I expect Ivan will have some uh, refreshing news to give us, and hopefully uh, I think we'll have Michael Oliver back as well. 
So uh, that is all the time we have this week. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.